We are in a place where Jesus, if you will, God is on trial. We pick it up in chapter 27, although in essence, because we focused on Peter's backslide, if you will, at the end of chapter 26, I will be gathering some of the other information from that text. But let's read, if you will, the first 26 verses of chapter 27 to sort of prepare us for where we're going today. Chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 1. Go ahead and get there. I'll I'll, I'll wait. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. It said, And Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Now you realize what they're saying, right? Judas is saying, I betrayed innocent blood. And their answer is, So what? I guess that's your problem, isn't it? Then he threw, that's Judas, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore the field has been known, or has been called Hakaldama, or as we see, field of blood to this day. Thus it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. And the Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word, so the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, of the, of, uh, at the, feast the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes, that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Well, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather... That a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands and before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just or innocent person you see to it. And the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pray with me, would you please? Father, I just want to thank you for what you're going to do in this time. 
please, Lord, redeem every second. I commit myself to you. I commit this precious flock to you. Our ears, our minds, our hearts, our spirits. God, please, today, teach us to love you with all of our heart and soul, with all of our mind and strength. And Lord, captivate us in your word. May it burst open and come alive, color in the black and white, that we get it like we've never gotten it before. And I just pray, God, today that you would speak a word to each of us individually, right where we need to hear you, and predispose us to hear it as you speak it. And at the end, may you manifest so clearly that all we can do is say, wow, thank you. So I pray that you would commit, that I commit this every moment to you and pray that you would redeem every second now, please. Use me, God. Immerse me. Come upon me. Overflow out of me. And do your perfect work now for each of us. That not only would we be glad we came, but that we would be forever changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Never just assume I'm telling you the truth or anyone is telling you the truth simply because they speak it with conviction or speed or whatever. But rather, search the Word of God and test everything by Scripture. I would say don't take my word for it, but take the word for it. Go back, since you have those Bibles, go back to chapter 20, I'm sorry, to 26, to the last chapter, and look at a couple of things as we kind of just quickly speed through the pretext for this. Jesus has been arrested, and we read in verse 57, that those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Verse 59 says, The chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And it says then in verse 60, they found none. Many false witnesses did come forward. They found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple and build it up in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then morning came, and they handed him over to Pilate. Jesus will experience six trials in this night and morning. Three of them will be, if you will, religious. Three of them will be secular. Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, when first taken, was brought before Annas in a private interview. Annas was the high priest originally, but had been deposed by Valerius Gratus because he was too much of a threat to the Roman Empire. But just because he wasn't the profile guy doesn't mean he wasn't pulling the strings. After that time, five sons, two grandsons, and a son-in-law will all serve as high priest. So he is still, in essence, running the role of high priest, even though he's not wearing the badge or the outfit. The young man, here we see Caiaphas. Caiaphas, by the way, means cutie. There's a name for you. And Caiaphas actually is his son-in-law. 
So he's brought before Ennis. And then he is brought before a small council. And then after that, he is brought before the full Sanhedrin. It is at that then they hand him over to Pilate. According to the Gospel of Luke, he'll stand before Pilate, who wants to set him free. He will be handed over to Herod, who at that time, Pilate and Herod were actually, Herod Antipas, were actually enemies. But they have a common enemy in the Jews. So they hand him over to, to Jesus, over to Herod. Herod questions him. Herod has the dubious honor of being the one man for whom Jesus has nothing to say. And then he sends him back to Pilate saying, I find no cause for death in this guy either. And then Pilate then turns to the people and we have the end that we see here with him asking, what evil has he done? What do you want me to do with him? Six different trials. In those six different trials, there is not a person here who actually claims him guilty. Ultimately, everybody declares his innocence. Clearly, we see here Judas has. Clearly, we see here the religious leaders respond with, so what? Not arguing over his innocence, but rather agreeing, but say, it's not our problem, it's yours. Here we'll see that Pilate declares him innocent. Herod will declare him innocent. Pilate will declare him innocent again. He turns to the crowd and says, what evil has he done? They will not answer. And even when Jesus is being crucified and at his death, it is the centurion guarding him that says, truly, this was a righteous man. Of all the people we know that have ever been in any way remotely innocent for anything that they are accused of, nobody was ever more innocent than him. And yet in this, we have this interesting story tucked into it, nestled into this, where we have in this event a man named Barabbas. Barabbas is mentioned, by the way, if you will, in all the other Gospels, at least the, the synoptics. And in those, by the way, for what it's worth, we do read this about him. And let me just sort of pepper the, the meat before we eat it uh, with this. It tells us in Mark, the next, uh, the next book over, Mark 15, 7, that his name was Barabbas and that he was chained with his fellow rebels who had committed insurrection or murder in that insurrection, if you will, in their rebellion. What we read is that he was a, he was a rebel leader or at least a, a rebel, you know, sort of a rebel, a, well, a rebel, there you go, uh, who in his rebellion against Rome had murdered people. It tells us in the Gospel of John, so it's in all of them as well, it tells us that his name is Barabbas, who we read was a robber in John 18.40. So he was a robber, he was a rebel, and he was a murderer. And what we see here is he was notorious. He was well known for it. Now back in our text, let me just say this, that Jesus is going to stand first before the religious leaders. He'll have his three trials and then be sent over to Pilate and have his three trials, of which only one is really highlighted in that sense, or if you will, too, overseen here in this particular text. And I do want to kind of point out a couple things here as we prepare for, for Pilate's time. First of all, did you notice in verse 59 that they sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death? They sought lies to condemn him. They knew that they couldn't just find some form of truth to condemn him, so they knew that he was innocent, and yet in knowing that he was innocent, they had to find a lie. And where is the best place, the easiest place to find a lie? In a rumor. So they go to people that they know will tell rumors, and they find that in those rumors, they finally can't even seem to find anything even there that agrees. Now, according to the book of Deuteronomy, nobody can be put to death without the testimony of two or more witnesses. You can't just have one person say something and put him to death. As a matter of fact, I'll go in a moment here quickly through the ten laws, if you will, the ten commandments of, Jew, of Jewish jurisprudence. But understand this. 
in the things that God states that he hates, a lying look or haughty look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, and a brother who sows discord among brethren, in that is a hand that sheds innocent blood. And the Jews would do nothing in and of themselves, at least intentionally, as a people, to try to shed innocent blood. This was so clear that when the Romans would actually surround a city, they would take Hebrew slaves, put them in the front of them, and then they would barrel into the city because they knew that the Jews would not shoot at their own people because they knew they were innocent. And here we are in this situation where they're looking and they realize that if they're going to find lies, they've got to find it in the rumor mill. It is amazing to this day how effective rumors are at destroying everything from close relationships to godly people's walks if they really try hard enough and the person is vulnerable. We also have in this particular accusation two things. Jesus doesn't answer and then he does answer. Did you notice that? When he is accused... What do you say of these men who testify against you? Jesus keeps silent. That's verse 63. But then in the end of verse 63, they say, put you under oath of the living God. Who are you? Are you the Christ, the Son of God, for which then Jesus answers? To the religious, when there is accusation, Jesus remains silent. But when there is inquiry, he's quick to speak. In that... It fulfills what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, 7. That he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth, he was taken from prison, which tells us he had to be arrested, and he was taken from judgment, which means it was unfair. Who will declare his generation, which means he was killed before he was able to have children. For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgressions of my people he was stricken and they made him a grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's an awful lot for Isaiah to tell us over 700 years before Jesus would come. So hear this quickly and I'll do this for your own sake. The Ten Commandments of Jewish jurisprudence. There were ten things that were required to try to create an essence of fairness and objectivity when a judgment was being passed in regards to a person being put on trial. And nowhere should they be brought to greater light than in the area of a death penalty because you want to really make sure the guy's not innocent. So therefore, the judges must have no, number one, they must have no previous experience with the defendant because let's face it, if they have a problem with the defendant, it'll be easy to pass against them. Second, they must not know the accuser. The person is trying to bring the charge against them because if they know them, they would be tending to side with the other side. They have to have a precluded, clear charge before the the trial starts. In other words, they have to say, this is what he's on trial for, and then let's hear that the sides give their... um, their testimonies. There's no pre-prescribed verdict. Of course, this isn't like he's guilty. Let's try to prove him so. You cannot be tried at night. A full day must be given. They call it a night of mercy, but a full day must be given before they give a verdict of, of uh, guilty for something that would commit the death penalty. There will be no private interviews. Full counsel must be present at all proceedings. There must be a unanimous decision, which we'll read in Luke 23:51, that Joseph of Arimathea had not agreed to this death penalty, and he was one of the ruling party. And finally, a false witness constitutes a mistrial. 
The moment one guy says, well, I heard him do this, or I saw him do this, and another guy says, well, I saw him do this, and they disagree with each other, the trial is immediately thrown out. The reason I say that is, Jesus could not have been given a more unjust trial than the one given to him by the religious leaders, because they broke all ten of those commandments, if you will, when trying Jesus. They had no previous, they had no clear charge, as a matter of fact. In the end of it all, what charge could they give him for actually handing him over to Pilate? That he blasphemed the temple? Where do you find that in Scripture? That he said he would tear it down and build it up again? Well, if that's the case, then I imagine probably Madonna's in an awful lot of trouble for what she said about the White House. Anyways, with all of that said, please just hear this, that Jesus comes from a place where, and it tells us in Isaiah that his justice was completely removed from him, which tells us that Jesus knew that this trial was rigged before he got there. He knew that though he was absolutely innocent, the spotless Lamb of God, innocent in every way without spot, blemish, tempted in every way yet without sin. He knew that he would stand guilty before men. The scary part is that he stood before those who claimed to represent him. And how did they do it? They found some lies from some rumors. And that wasn't enough. So they finally just had to listen to Jesus talk. They accused him. He gave him nothing. So then they finally said, who are you? And in Jesus' response, they said, well, that's all we're looking for. Now Jesus is being handed over to Pilate. We read, then morning came again. Now we're at that verse 1. The elders of the people plotted against Jesus. That word plotted for what it's worth, sumbulion. It, it actually means, in essence, to take counsel together. It's the kind of word where a bunch of people sort of sneaky. The, the way that I see it is because I have friends like this. Oh, we seem to have friends like this, where you always kind of know that if they're kind of all kind of giggling and they're all kind of in a little circle and you're not part of that circle, you're probably going to be the recipient of that giggle somehow. That's this word, sumbulion. That's the idea of this. Is they're plotting, they're kind of getting together and going, oh, this is what we're going to do. Well, there's the idea. Interesting that two times we'll see it in this text. The first is, in essence, to seek to how to eradicate Jesus. And I remind you, this is the religious leaders. How do I get rid of Jesus from this religion? And second, how do I get to, what do we do with this money that really isn't ours? Let's bury people that have no honor. That's interesting. Those are the two things. Let's get Jesus out of this, and then let's take people who have no honor and let's give them a burial, proper burial, if you will. So they bind him and they lead him away to a person we read here in verse 2 as Pontius Pilate. Did you know until 1960, all of those sort of hoity-toity people that thought they were so smart but hated God? God, by the way, you know, it tells us a fool says in his heart there's no God, so at least you know God's appraisal. But they may be brilliant and stupid at the same time. You know people like that? They're like really, really smart. But what they do with that smart is so stupid, you don't even know what to do with that. Well, get this. Until 1960, they actually believed there was no such person as Pontius Pilate, even though he had been listed by other individuals. Even though, he had been, even though he had been claimed by historians, they said, we have no physical proof other than a couple pieces or copies of some things that aren't even extant manuscripts. Until they were redoing the, uh, the theater there in Caesarea, and as they were redoing the theater in Caesarea, they were taking, you know, it's sort of like the pews you sit on. Well, those would be a bunch of rocks, you know. And they took one of the stones and they flipped it up. And as they flipped it up underneath it, it actually had, was the dedication stone for the theater itself that said that it had been built under the command and under the honor of Pontius Pilate. 
And I just wonder of all the things people go, oh, yeah, we'll prove that. Or what about that? God knows exactly when he wants something dug up. And we'd be like, he knows where it's all on the planet. And at any moment he could go, well, I'll just kind of pull that up now if we want to. But Pilate, for what it's worth, was, if you will, the the fifth uh, governor, if you will, of the area, what we know of as the Roman province of Judea. So hear me on this. Once upon a time, there was, in essence, a guy that looked a bit like Danny DeVito, if you know who that is, sort of short, bald, kind of a heavier set guy, kind of loud and obnoxious, and his name was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was known as Herod the Great not because of his stature or of his looks, but he was brilliant in his architecture. He was brilliant in his building projects. Of one, the rebuilding or the remodeling of the temple from something roughly 4,400 square feet to something 1.2 million square feet. That's a big remodel. He actually has the top of Mount Zion or Jerusalem. He has that mountain leveled flat that you can still see today because that's the Temple Mount as we know it today. That's where the Shrine of Omar and Al-Aqsa Mosque are today. Well, it's nice and flat and level for them. They can thank Herod for that. When Herod, because Herod was paranoid, because he had gotten his position by intrigue, because he was paranoid, well, he lived in constant fear because he had gotten his place through intrigue, that there were other people trying to get his job just the same way that he had gotten it, because that was his universe. Which means that any of his able-bodied sons, because they would be the easiest guy to slip into that role, he was always in concern over. And so he had many of his, anyone who was in essence an up-and-coming brilliant young son, he had murdered just to make sure that they weren't going to be a threat. They said dead people aren't much of a threat unless you're Jesus. With that, what that means is when, when Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, well that leaves a vacuum of power in the area that he oversaw. And there was no son apt enough or able enough to be able to take over all that spot. So as a result of that, that territory gets broken up into different portions, four portions, for which then four different guys were given position for it. We know that as a tetrarch, tetra meaning four, arch meaning primary, like archangel or architect. Of those four people, we know of Philip, he's given the farther north area. Antipas, who's given the area just south, the area of Galilee. That's the Herod that actually tries Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And then there's the guy down in Judea. He gets Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, and his name is Archelaus. Now, Archelaus was a punk. He was much like his dad. He was smart, but he hid it, but he was nasty, and they knew it. In the Gospel of Matthew, by the way, back in chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus, his parents had fled to Egypt. Do you remember that? Because Herod seeks to kill all the children in his competition. Ultimately, you know, in Bethlehem, because they know there's a king being born. Well, Jesus then coming back, they read, but when they read that Archelaus was reigning in his place, they went all the way up to Nazareth. They were not going to be a part of Archelaus' reign because they knew that he was just as much trouble as his dad. Well, Archelaus, by the way, taking that position, gets them, if you will, that area from 4 B.C., and forgive me for that, if you will, if you're not into the history, but it all kind of paints the picture for where we're at, to 6 A.D. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, Jesus tells us this story about a guy that comes to receive his kingdom, but it says, but his constituents hated him, would not have him. And they finally went and complained and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. For what I believe that's Luke 19, 14. Well, well, when that happens, understand that story actually accounts for what took place with Archelaus. He was there for, in essence, nine years, and the people hated him so bad they complained to Caesar. And they said, we cannot have this guy rule over us. This guy is a maniac and he's horrible and he's nasty. 
You know, and so as a result of that, they did what, what the one thing that they knew would punish people that were rulers. They banished him to Gaul. Do you know where Gaul is? Well, where do you send a guy to punish him when he's a bad ruler? Gaul is for what it's worth today's friends. Well, anyway, so you know, so I'm sure that Deborah's going to love that for a while. Anyways. It also works its way into parts of Luxembourg and southern Germany and, and so forth. But for the most part, the place where they sent him, and it actually tells us, is basically the area of northern Italy and part of France. It's sort of where he was, he was banished. Well, now we have this vacuum again. What Rome does as they remove him, and for good reason, they actually find that he's, of course, a real nuisance and a danger, is that they now claim the area as a Roman province of Judea, so they call it the Roman province of Judea. This is 6 AD. And they stick in there now their first prefect or governor. His name is Caponius. Now, Caponius is easy for me to remember. I was born in Chicago, so I'm like thinking Caponius. And, and he was very much, to be honest, like that. And Caponius does something really interesting in 7 AD. He removes the right of capital punishment from the Jews. He recognizes the high priest seems to have an awful lot of influence. And if he wants to demoralize the Jewish people so that they can actually become part of the Roman Empire in a way that wasn't a threat to them, remove the high priest's power. So they remove the right of capital punishment. That was in 7 AD. Now, hear me on this for a quick side note, and then we get into our text and we sort of see how that plays out here, because I have to get you to the pilot. Well, there is a problem when the, when the right of capital punishment was removed because there's this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49 that says that the scepter shall not leave Judah until Shiloh comes. The Shiloh rest is the term, but it means in essence the Messiah. And they knew that the Messiah had to be presented before, he had to be presented as a man before they were in the place where they had the right of capital punishment removed from them. That would be the scepter removed. That's Genesis 49.10. Interesting. Do the math for a second. If, if Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and he was the one trying to kill Jesus who was born, that's simple, right? That means Jesus had to be born before 4 BC because he wouldn't try to kill a kid that wasn't born yet. As he tries to kill him, let's say that Jesus was born then in 5 or 6 B.C. Because remember, he kills children two years old and younger. And then I start doing the math. You know, we have one event after Jesus' babyhood, if you will, his toddlerhood. We have one event between that and his manhood. Do you remember that? It's in the Gospel of Luke. His parents come to the Feast of Passover. And while they're at the Feast of Passover, as all of the people had gone to Galilee, from Galilee they'd kind of go there. And remember how they leave Jesus behind and they find him in the temple? And you always kind of, do you ever just read that and go, oh, it's kind of interesting text. I mean, what is this going to bear with anything, you know? It's like, first of all, what does it mean that Joseph and Mary were bad parents? Should we have called CPS on these people? I mean, what, why do we even have that in there? Well, do the math. Well, how old was Jesus when they left him in the temple? Do you remember? He's 12, 13 years old. If this was done when Jesus was 12, 13 years old, and you start the math at 4 B.C., 5 B.C., and then you add seven years to it when Caponius removes the right of capital punishment, why would Jesus be brought there at 12, 13 years old? Why does any Jewish boy brought to the temple at age 12, 13? They have a thing called bar mitzvah. Have you ever heard that term? 
Bar Mitzvah, is, to this day, it's actually a cool thing to be in Jerusalem for, because when you turn into, a, in essence, it's like the boy becomes a man. He's now responsible. He reads the law for the first time in Hebrew before everyone, and then everyone throws candy at him. I mean, so there's a benefit there. Consider that. So if you're standing out, kind of watching this thing from a distance, you just might get a piece of candy if you're, you know, there's always somebody with terrible aim, but a good arm. Well, well, understand, get this. Jesus then was presented in the temple as his bar mitzvah. He's presented as a man responsible. His parents leave him behind inadvertently. But when they do that, he is presented in the temple. And then Caponius removes the right of capital punishment. The scepter shall not be removed from Judah until Shiloh comes. It was exactly like what God had promised. Well, for what it's worth, then, we go fast forward. After Caponius, there were a handful of others until we get to 26 AD, and that is our fifth prefect or governor. His name is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate knows that the people before them have been kind of softies and trying to kind of play the let's all be friends, join hands, and sing kumbaya kind of thing. So he kind of comes in hard and heavy. Now, it does say this for what it's worth, and now I'm quoting for a moment from Josephus. It tells us, and as he tells us about this transition time, he says, By the tenth year of Achelaus' government, both his brethren and the principal men of Judea and Samaria, not being able to bear his barbarous, uh, barbarous, if you will, uh, and tyrannical usage of them, they accused them. Caesar, upon hearing what certain accusers had to say, banished him and appointed Vienna, a city in Gaul, uh, to be the place of his habitation, and took his money away from him. Caponius, Caponius also a man of an equestrian order, was sent to have the supreme power over the Jews. Supreme power. How does one exercise supreme power? They remove the right of capital punishment. For what it's worth, that's Josephus' Antiquities, Book 17, Chapter 3, chapter 13, I'm sorry, Verse 2, and Book 18, Chapter 1, Verse 1. And I only say that so you can check up on me. Don't live sin. This guy, if this is kind of just dancing you in circles, we're getting right into the text, but I need to let you know what Pilate was like. Pilate comes in and he wants to come in hard and heavy. When Josephus speaks about Jerusalem, it speaks of it in things that astound him and other Roman orators of the day are astounded. And they say there's two things that are amazing about Jerusalem. One is that there's a day of the week where nobody does anything. It's a loose paraphrase. We know it, of course, is the Sabbath, Shabbat. And that amazed the Romans. They kind of looked and went, well, on this day, nobody even, like, nobody does anything. But the second is, it is also a city in where there is not found a single idol. Well, every other place conquered by Rome, and I remind you, by this point, it was a Roman province. Every other place was a place where they had busts of Caesar. And so Pilate, seeking to actually show his force, puts a bust of Caesar in the northeast corner of the temple, just above it in the Antonio Fortress, where the guards for Rome collect. The people go mental, as you might imagine. They storm the lawn of Pilate's palace in Caesarea. 600 men show up. And they have the first sit-in, if you will. They sit with the idea, we're going to starve ourselves to death on your lawn. Now, Pilate just takes office, which means all of the other guys are kind of showing up at his place. Hey, congratulations, who are those guys on your lawn? You know, and Pilate's starting to see this, and it's really starting to bother him. Finally, he says, I tell you what. Let's, you guys go home. You have an appointment with me. We're going to meet in the marketplace on a specific day. Let's meet together and we'll discuss this. The people agree. 
And they go home. Pilate is able to entertain his dignitaries. Finally, after all of that, Pilate has this meeting. The 600 men are there. Pilate stands there. And as they stand there, they are now in a gauntlet. And he has the Roman army surround them. And Pilate says, in essence, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Either you go home or I take you somewhere else. And these men say, we would rather die than transgress the law of Moses. Because the commandments tell us that there should be no idol or any carved image. That's the second commandment. So, Pilate, with his tail between his legs, calls off his guard because he doesn't want to start things like Caponius had where he murdered thousands of Jews. And he pulls this down and now Pilate knows he has a very delicate touch on the Jewish people. He wants to look like he's in control, but he knows in essence that he just can't get them to rule. They're unruly. They're unruly and therefore cannot be ruled. So when Pilate is dealing with this situation, he is in this place where he realizes he can't push this real hard. But there is a problem. Jesus is loved by the common people. He's loved by the common people and he kind of has that in his back pocket. So, if you knew that much, it tells us here that Pilate comes, he's brought before Pilate and notice it says in this then, verse 3, we have this little insert with Judas. Judas comes in, he says, hey, I betrayed innocent blood. I didn't realize you're going to condemn the guy. And they say, that's your problem. And then there's this interesting thing, and I have to at least address this for a moment. It says in verse 9, take a look at it with me. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. When it said they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave it to the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Do you see that? There's the problem with that. And then as you can read through the book of Jeremiah, you're not going to find it. Now, you can find for what it's worth in Jeremiah 32, where Jeremiah buys his cousin Hanamel's field. So we do have that he does purchase a field. In Zechariah chapter 11, a different, uh, a different prophet altogether, in Zechariah 11:12, it says this, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. Mind you, the Lord said that. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now someone is saying, well, look it, here it is. This is clearly one of those places where the Bible's incorrect. Because after all, it says, this is what Jeremiah said. It's not in Jeremiah, but it's in Zechariah. But if I'm just going to be honest to tell you, first of all, that is not what Zechariah says. In Zechariah's text, it was a wage that was given for which then Zechariah declared by the Lord that the Lord told him, go and throw that, did you notice, for which it would become a potter's field. But notice it doesn't say in verse 9, that which was written by Jeremiah. Do you see that? But that which was spoken. Somewhere Jeremiah had spoken this. And as Jeremiah had spoken this, God in his divinity chooses to let us know that Jeremiah warned us Again, roughly 600 years, 500 years before Jesus came, that this would happen. For what it's worth then, we have now this situation. The governor in verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor. 
The governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, It is as you say. In Hebrew, you're aware. A question and a statement are the same. It's your inflection. You don't say, there's no are you. You just say, you are king of the Jews? For which then he says, yes, you said it, it's true. And it says, any was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Pilate says, do you hear how many things they testify against you? And notice it says in verse 14, he answered not a word. So the governor marveled greatly. But don't miss this. Do you realize Jesus' response to the secular world was just the same as the religious world? And the religious world, when they asked him, who are you? He answered. But when they accused him, he remained silent. Do you remember that? And here in the, relig- in the secular world, when they accused him, notice by the way, who's accusing him in the secular world? The religious leaders again. He remained silent again. But when Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? He responds. And let me just say, I think there's something to learn from that. I mean, how many times in our own walk with God do we actually kind of accuse him and then we expect him to defend himself? God, why did you do that? I don't understand why you had to take my 99-year-old grandmother. How old did you want her to live? I'm not trying to be mean. And you realize when you kind of come at God that way, I think he just, well, I'm sure he knows better than to try to answer you because you're not really going to listen. You're going to try to grab that to try to make it another thing for an argument. You ever meet people like that? Have you ever been in one of those? Well, you know if you say anything, it's just going to get twisted and thrown back at your face. But then if you say nothing, then they're, giving, then they're going to be angry because you're silent. Like, well, you know, the only thing to do at that moment is like fake death because it's really the only way you're going to get out of that. Like I, feel like I feel a coma coming on. Well, and the reason I say that is, is that Jesus, when you, if you want to accuse him, don't expect him to stand around and defend himself because cause really I don't think you're in a position to listen. You're already listening to someone else, the accuser, to be able to throw that out in the first place. But if you could stop, even in the midst of the most horrific times and things are rough and, and you're just dealing with it, you're like, God, who are you? I'm sure you would answer. I'm the calmer of the storm. I'm the God of all comfort. I'm good. I'm your peace. And the moment we start trying to, to run to, to this place where we just want to draw battle lines, God doesn't want to draw battle lines with us. But rather, the moment we go, God, I need you to meet me in this situation. Who are you? I know he would meet us. And that's what we see in both of these texts, which takes us to the last thing here. And in this last thing, what we find is, that there's this comparison of Jesus and this notorious prisoner. In verse 15, Pilate knows that he has this ace in the hole. Now get this. The religious leaders, we read this, that Pilate knew they had handed him over because they were jelly. They were, they were envious. And so they knew that Jesus was an enemy to the religious leadership, but he was not an enemy to the people. So Pilate does not ask the religious leaders who do you want to set free. He asks the people. Now imagine Pilate's mindset. It would be actually rather easy. He looks and he thinks, well, this will be easy. I could turn to the people and say, which one of these two guys you want me to release? This guy that's kind of a terrorist or this guy who's, that you all love. He, I mean, who in the right mind wouldn't assume that they'd say Jesus? 
So what he's doing is he's stripping the power from the religious leaders, in essence, and going, and then when he can turn and go, well, I gave them a choice, and they released Jesus, I guess you're out of luck. That would be easy. But what he doesn't know is that the religious leaders have already anticipated that move, and therefore have already, in essence, stacked the deck of the people to demand to release Barabbas instead. I mean, that's the way it looks here. And we know this. I mean, at this point, he'll say, look, Herod says he's innocent. I've said he's innocent. And just, if you really want to find a guy and get him influenced, go to his wife. And it says, now, did you notice it says, I have been troubled very much by a dream this day? Which tells us that that girl was laying on a couch in the afternoon. Somewhere in all of that, she's kind of like, well, I had this weird dream. And you need to leave this guy alone. He's innocent. So Pilate, the religious leaders, the crowd, Herod, and Pilate's wife have all declared him innocent. And yet with all of those people declaring him innocent, and Pilate wanting to set him free, he's powerless. So he asks him, what has he done? Nothing. No one will say. Just kill him. Just, just get rid of him. So now he's staring at two people. A person who completely deserves to go free, and a person who completely deserves the death penalty. And you're aware that Romans actually didn't have a life, life sentence was keep you in prison long enough for us to get the wood so we can crucify you. Romans did not keep people in prison for more than a week unless something really weird was going on. You were there as a holding cell to your execution. But Jesus didn't spend time in a Roman prison. I remind you, Jesus spent time in the prison at the palace of the high priest. That tells you something. So this is what we're left with at the end of this. Both of them had their own kingdoms. And because they had their own kingdoms, they had no room for the king that Jesus would be. They would both abuse him and treat him as less than a human. But then I look at, I look at this man, which God actually even has the courtesy to tell us his name, right? He tells us his name is Barabbas. And I read that he's an insurrectionist. He's a rebel against both the king and his kingdom. He's a rebel with other rebels, and he hangs out with them. His crowd is rebellious, who in the rebellion have hurt and killed others. He's destroyed relationships, torn apart families, broken hearts, stolen dignity and honor and virtue, taking and abusing and, and, and using criminal with the most felonious heart, full of the vilest, most repugnant and disgraceful, uncaring behavior and attitude in the sight of Rome. He deserves all the might and the fury of the law. He deserves the strongest force of the merciless arm of vengeance. And with the greatest gravity of justice and without the tiniest echo of impunity, he deserves the gavel. This is the crux and the hub and the apex of a guilty man. And this is the guilty man I am. See, it's easy to look at this from the outside and go, this is a story until I look and go, which one of these two men do I deserve to be? Have I been rebellious? Have I stood against the law? Have I gathered others like myself in mind? Have I hurt others in that rebellion? Have I killed, if not literally, the hearts and relationships of those that really, if it weren't for my rebellion, I'd have some form of relationship with? Have I stolen dignity and honor and virtue from others? Have I taken and used and abused? Yeah, I have. I realize as I look at this story and I try to relate, the first thing I see is that this man, 
that was a terrorist, that was a threat to others, that in essence deserved the full weight of the law, it was completely unjust. It was completely unfair. Because I look at Jesus' trial, and though he had done nothing, he was executed as the worst of criminals. And that was unfair. He didn't deserve a cross look, nonetheless, the cross. He didn't deserve a cold shoulder, nonetheless, the whip upon his back. But I do. And I don't know where you stand, but I know where I stand. And I know that if we were honest with ourselves, maybe you don't think all of that torture would be for you. I do. And I realize that on this day, a man who should have gone to the cross, a man who should have been humiliated and beaten to death and tortured, was not, and that is not fair. That's called grace. Because Jesus was given all of my punishment, and that's not fair. That's called salvation. And I realized the perfect, the holy, the spotless, the holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy Lamb of God, the icon and emblem of all purity and innocence, stands with spit dripping off of His face because of my shame. And I hear people say, release Barabbas. And then I think about what his name means. Remember Bar Mitzvah? Bar means son. Mitzvah means law or commandment. You're the son of the commandment now, boy. You've had your Bar Mitzvah. Barabbas is Bar and Abba. What is Abba? Daddy. See, the guy that was set free, his name is Son of the Father. Not a father, the Father. Not just the distant Sir, but Daddy. The reason why this man goes free is because this man was tortured to death. This perfectly innocent God in the flesh, the Son of God, tortured to death. But this man, if you're going to be this person, you're going to have to be Barabbas. You're going to have to be the son of the father. You can't just say, hey God, give me what i got coming to me. Because if Barabbas said that, he would have got nailed in a moment and nobody could have said that wasn't fair. But instead, God in His infinite love says, this is the Son of the Father, and I'm going to show you this man is in essence then our emblem. Because this man who deserves everything goes free because this man takes his place. And I want to warn you, the world will always choose the Barabbas, the notorious, the criminal. Matter of fact, notorious in most circles is actually street cred. That's a good word to be called. Well, yo, man, you, you notorious. But can I say as we go to prayer, unless you are willing to become a son of the Father, you stand guilty. Because nobody else, nobody else is willing to take your place but the Son of God. 
No matter how many books you read, no matter how many religions you search, no matter how many people you want to follow, nobody steps up to the plate. Nobody steps in your stead except this guy right here, Jesus the Christ. And you've got two choices. And that is to stay the guilty or let Jesus take your place. But if he's paid your bill, why in the world would you want to? So as we go to prayer, I just want to ask, what about you? Could you hear today God saying, free Barabbas? You might ask, well, how do I become his son? Aren't we all children of God? No. Actually, what Scripture says is we are children of wrath. That's what Scripture says. Look for yourself, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You will see that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, walking around by the prince of the power of the air, fulfilling our lusts of our desire, lust of our flesh and mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. That's what it tells us. Everyone is a child of wrath to start with, but here's the good news. My God is into adoption. And the moment you say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ who stood in your place, God places within you His Spirit that the Bible makes clear in Romans and Galatians is the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba. That's what it tells us. You'll be a child of the Abba too. You'll be a Bad Abbas too. But the one that's set free. But for that to happen, you must be born again. Here's the cool part. There's only two ways to become a child of a family. You were either born into it or you're adopted into it. But what if you could be both? God, like, can you imagine? He sealed every deal by the way that we say yes to Jesus because we are born again, so we're born into the family, but he adopts us, so we're adopted too. Nobody can actually say that we're not a child of God except the enemy, and that's because he lies. No matter what corner he tries to flip, no matter what rock he tries to look under, if you've said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, his death for your sins, his death for your sins, and his resurrection to give you the whole new life, a life that is adopted, born again, then you're his. But that's the choice you have to make. I've made it. I am so thankful. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this text. I want to thank you for the privilege, God, because I, in what I deserve, justice would say, what I deserve is vengeance, wrath, the full weight, might, and fury of the merciless law. But you love me and you want me. And because you love me and want me in this cold church building today in February 2017, you've called me to hear that I make my choice of where I want to stand. Do I want to stand in the feet of a guilty man or stand in the feet of one who is being released, set free? And I know that for Barabbas, no matter how many nice things he could have done after his murder, after his rebellion, he was still an enemy of the state and of the king. And in the same way, Lord, I recognize all the good works that I could do don't pay for the horrible things I've thought, intended, felt, and done here in my rebellion. So, Lord, I pray today you would set us free.
and that we would recognize the beauty of being the Barabbas. So Lord, please have your way now and speak to us. And if there be any in this room or at the sound of this voice that you know that you've maybe never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ or you know you haven't, and you recognize there you are standing before the judgment seat, And you're either going to stand as the guilty one or the innocent one. Because Jesus took the guilt, unless you take Jesus' payment for you, you stand in that guilt. You remain in that guilt. But today you have that choice. And today you want to make the choice to say yes to this gift. Accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, knowing He paid for your sins, rose again to be the Lord and architect of your new life. Well then pray this prayer with me right now. God, In heaven, I am guilty before you. Guilty in my sin, in my shame, in my failures. But you love me and want me anyways. And you sent Jesus to die for me anyways. And in Him dying for me, He paid my price. All the punishment that could come upon me came upon Him. And because of that, it would be foolish for me to take the punishment, to claim it for myself when the bill's been paid. But you give me a choice. You give me free will. And in that, I choose Jesus. I choose Him not only as my Savior, because I recognize it's more than just saying yes to that payment, but accepting Him as who He is. Savior, but also as Lord. And at His resurrection, just like your Scripture promised, He is the Lord of my new life. So I hand myself over. I don't understand everything, but I understand this much, that if I give you my life, you will make it perfect and pure and innocent and take all that guilt and bury it forever. Take it off of me and make me a whole new person without that anymore. So I say yes, and I say have me now, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer today, ask you to say, Amen. You've heard us, Lord. And we just want to thank you for setting us free, for making us yours. Lord, lead us now, we pray. In Jesus' name.